The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox. Alongside us, we will be speaking with Maria Torres from The Athletic here shortly, so stay tuned for that interview. She covers prospects for The Athletic on the National Sense, as well as the Dominican Republic, the international signing period. We're going to get into a story that she and her colleague Ken Rosenthal wrote for The Athletic titled, A Failed System, A Corrupt Process Exploits Dominican Baseball Prospects. Is an international draft really the answer? So James, that's really what we're going to dive into today. Before we introduce our guest, Maria, let's talk about what's happening currently on this date, January 24th, 2022. We're keeping an eye on the CBA, Players Union, and the owners still negotiating. However, Something that's kind of, I don't know, it's not troubling. It's just something that's, um, well, not in our back pocket yet. And that's the official announcement of Oscar Colas. What the hell, James, is going on over there? Yeah, I don't get it. I was told last week, uh, this week, um, and I was told today uh, it should be this week. So, so like, we'll see. I, I don't think anything, I don't think there's anything to worry about. I've had fans, like, asking me, like, oh, did something fall through? No, because, like, you're going to hear on this podcast, like, nobody has money anyway, even if it did fall through. Like, nobody else has $3 million to give him. So it'll happen. Um, the White Sox are notoriously late with stuff like this, and obviously we cover the minor leagues and get rosters uh, usually when the players take the field. So, you know, they're just, you know, some parts of the operation over there, they just seem to take longer than other teams for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's going to cost the White Sox this player. It's just I would like to have this player on their roster. So we'll keep an eye on that, and we'll provide you updates at futuresox.com. Thanks so much for listening and tuning in. As always, really appreciate your support. We're going to introduce Maria now from The Athletic. And, I mean, there's a number of topics that we are going to get to, and a lot of it includes just the uh, overall structure of how specifically Dominican-born players are prepped and developed in the Dominican Republic prior to being signed by a Major League Baseball team. And a lot of it is is gross, to be quite frank. Comparatively, when you see a prospect develop stateside versus the Dominican Republic, there are glaring, glaring differences. So hopefully in the conversation, you can take something from Maria Torres, who is wonderful, 
um, and does a great job at The Athletic and did a great job in the piece that we are going to discuss next. We are pleased to be joined by Maria Torres of The Athletic. She covers prospects around Major League Baseball and in Minor League Baseball. She was formerly with the Washington Nationals beat. Now she's working with Ken Rosenthal on a story that really opened our eyes. This is something that us at Future Sox, of course, have been paying close attention to uh, over the last several seasons, just considering how active the White Sox are in this market. Maria Torres joins us on the Future Sox podcast to discuss an article that she had uh, a lot to do with working with Ken Rosenthal titled A Failed System, A Corrupt Process Exploits Dominican Baseball Prospects. And the question she's asking, is an international draft really the answer? So Maria, thank you so much for taking the time. Really looking forward to getting into this conversation because for us who have been paying attention, and I don't mean that as a slight to those who haven't, it's just, it's been, it's really difficult to find accurate coverage of what's going on specifically in the Dominican Republic. And I think here's, uh, this is where I want to start. I grew up playing youth baseball locally in my neighborhood, park district wise, grew up, ended up going into high school, playing baseball at the high school level, and then ultimately in college. Um, And I didn't really necessarily have a serious avenue or pursuit of getting into Major League Baseball. One, because I wasn't talented enough. And two, I mean, let's be realistic. It's, It's almost impossible, right? Unless you're super talented. However, in the Dominican, this is an avenue for players to essentially get out of the Dominican. And there's a stark contrast between the Dominican players growing up versus players stateside growing up, children stateside growing up. So if you could put it into words, how is it for the Dominican athlete when they start young as a child and then they grow up into the years in which they're scouting? What's that process like for them in order to get drafted to play the game at the highest level? Well, thanks, first of all, for having me on, Michael and James. I really appreciate you guys taking an interest in this story. It's just in general, the topic of the Dominican Republic is very close to my heart. I'm, you know, my background is I'm Puerto Rican and Dominican. Um, so I have family members on both the islands and it's a, it's a, it's such a huge thing in our culture, of course, to, to have baseball and, and be able to play it. Um, and in the case of the Dominican, um, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's just a way for, generally speaking, for kids to, to get out of poverty and help their families get out of poverty. Um, everything is very family oriented there, of course. And, and, uh, when, you see uh, someone like Juan Soto uh, doing what he does on the national stage, winning a World Series at the age that he was and helping lead the Nationals too and being a, a, an MVP candidate and a finalist. And um, when you see someone like that, he looks like you, sounds like you, at least when he speaks Spanish and um, is, is from the same place as you, you're, you kind of look up to them, that guy and you're like, shoot, why can't I be just like him? Um, if I, I love baseball like he does and I I love to play it and I, I think I could be good at it. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just what the, the kids see. Um, and it's, it's the easiest way in their minds to make money because they just make, they're able to sign these contracts at 16. <laughs> that doesn't, I mean, teenage millionaires, that, I mean, that that's something that would never occur to us. And, 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 you know, when growing up in the United States, unless you're like a celebrity, right? <laughs> like that's not really like an easy thing to do. Um, but over there, it kind of seems that way just because like there's there's just so many uh, kids who sign at 16 and go on to try to become major league baseball players 
um, it's it's a kind of a it, it's kind of a convoluted process um, to become a professional baseball player from the Dominican Republic. Um, most of the time, kids will you know if they've if if they've kind of developed enough talent to, at the time that they're nine or ten, um, they'll go and start training with uh with a with a trainer um who these these guys kind of see themselves as you know trainers coaches mentors they um provide for the kids up front um they the so the kids will go um start boarding at the schools that the trainers um have not schools excuse me they have like their baseball field sometimes they just like use like a community baseball field and they'll have like dorms somewhere um, we'll have a couple of apartments or something and they'll have the kids board with them. Um, it's all kinds of different things. And really what it looks like depends on the trainer. Um, it depends on if the guy is a, is someone who has been in it a long time and has the, has the funds to do something like a full apartment or someone who maybe has his own facility. Um, in the cases of some people I know out there who, you know, they have a, they have a stadium that they use. Um, I, I use the state stadium, the term stadium lightly, um, but, you know, just they have a field with, you know, that's like closed off and everything. And um, they have dorms like right beyond the outfield. Like there are guys who have stuff like that. Um, really all just depends. But, you know, those kids go into these these so-called baseball academies and just go live there. Um, they're there pretty much every I mean, they're there definitely during the week and on the weekends, depending on how close their family is, they can go home. Otherwise, like they're not going home very often because it's not financially feasible in a lot of cases for them to get home and see their family very frequently when they're just training to become baseball players. Um, and from, you know, basically from like 10 to 13, um, these kids are just playing, training, practicing every day, trying to do what they can to, to better their skills. And when, when the time comes to get on the showcase, um, on the showcase level, they're, they're out there just showcasing their talent. Um, in a lot of cases, like they're, like you'll see like even 13 year olds at a same like scouting event with 15 year olds and you know kids older than that um it's kind of a weird dynamic when you see like a really like young gangly like 13 year old out in the outfield doing what he's doing and then you, know, you see like a 17 year old pitcher on the mound and i mean there's just a very wide range of of, of skill sets but also just body types because 13 year olds aren't usually done growing yet so um, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a murky process in that sense. Yeah. With that being said, I mean, just to, I mean, when you, when you put it like that and I'm just picturing a 13 year old competing on the same field as, you know, seniors in high school, it, it's kind of hard to fathom. However, it seems like that's the norm over there. And it's been that way for several years. And within the article, you have a quote from Juan Soto who said, you know, scouts in the Dominican, they say they want you to be able to run 60 yards and throw 100 and hit the ball everywhere from birth. That's not how it works. That's impossible. As much as you try to make it normal, that just won't happen. End quote. That's from Juan Soto. And I'm thinking if you're a 13 year old and your only avenue is to get out of there by playing baseball, where's the leverage, right? It's got to be within the scouts. So within that realm, from a scouting perspective, how young can players get scouted and how young can they be laid claim, I guess, from a scout? Uh, and, and then what does that mean when the scout says, okay, this player's mind, is it suddenly all their control? Like, how does that work? I'll start with how young kids can be scouted. There's not really a limit on how, at what point scouts can start 
evaluating players. Um, it's the same, same same thing stateside. Like if scouts are at perfect game and they see like a 12U tournament or whatever, you know, you understand what I'm saying. Like if they're at a USA baseball tournament or whatever, they're not going to just like turn around and be like, oh, I can't watch that guy. He's 12. Um, in those cases in the United States, you'll see a scout maybe watch a 12 year old and be like, mm, okay, maybe he's something. I'll write down his name and like maybe a couple of things that stand out and keep it and put it in a notebook or send it to my supervisor and follow up on it in the years that come. Uh, in the case of like the of Latin America, um, those kids are watching, uh, so, excuse me, the, the scouts are, are watching these 12 year olds and trying to make, you know, six figure, seven figure decisions. Um, they're trying to project on a 12, 13 year old, um, whether or not he can be, uh, he, he, whether or not he's worth a, a seven figure bonus and whether or not he could become something and make the club a lot of money down the line once he matures as a player. Um, and that is something that, that Soto is referring to is, is how young, um, how, how much younger the scouts are, are focusing or how much younger the players scouts are focusing on are. Um, it used to be that scouts kind of treated 12 year olds and 13 year olds the same way in the Dominican as they do in the United States. Like they just didn't really have to worry about them. They would worry about them closer to their signing deadlines. Um, now because teams know in advance that they'll have at least almost $5 million to spend internationally every year because of how it was laid out in the collective bargaining agreement. Um, the previous one, um, they just, they can start looking younger and younger. They could look at that 12 year old and be like, all right, in 2025 or whatever I, or 2026, whichever signing period that is, um, I want to make sure that this guy is on our radar. I want to make sure that he is locked up because look at him right now. He could be even 10 times better than he is now in three years. Um, so we're just going to ask him like, Hey, and 12 is like very extreme. Like usually this happens like between 13 and 14 at this point, but there are cases of like 12 year olds being locked into, um, verbal agreements. And that is not exactly allowed by the rules, but because it's not written down and it's not really, you know, enforceable. So Maria in the piece, you know, you quoted a longtime player agent as saying MLB has allowed the industry to spiral out of control. Um, just why do you think that has happened? And then do you think that's like more so over the last five years, you know, just like with the finite amount of resources, you mentioned the 5 million. I know like some of the smaller market clubs get a little over six, but everybody has five pretty much. Do you like, is that what he was referring to? I guess just how MLB's let it spiral out of control. Yeah, I think that's kind of exactly what he meant. Um, uh, I think that's happened in the view of agents because MLB has been wanting to implement a draft internationally for a very long time. This isn't like a new thing. This isn't something that started last decade, started last century. I mean, it's MLB has been trying to control the the amount of spending abroad for a long time now. And in the views of people who you know, have a stock in the system, it, MLB has allowed it to happen because of that. They they think that they have, or sorry, they they think the league has just not taken seriously whatever claims are made. Um, they don't think that the league has pursued action against um, people who have done wrong in the international market. And they think it's a nefarious thing that the league has kind of just let it happen um, to pursue their own you know, means. Yeah. So, I mean, that makes some sense. I mean, in there too, it just, you know, talks about how 
like corruption has basically dominated because of this. So, you know, in there too, it mentions the union. So the union just basically, and let me know if I have this wrong, that, you know, they want the rules enforced basically. And MLB doesn't enforce these rules. You know, the Braves were hit hard a couple of years ago and the Red Sox have been penalized. But I mean, this stuff has been going on for years and everybody kind of just like laughs about it. And we had guests on that like talk about the nefarious dealings, but nobody really does anything. So would you, would you say that it's the MLB's PA PA's position or the players association's position that they just, they would obviously oppose any sort of international draft, but they just like want major league baseball to enforce the rules and start penalizing teams for doing essentially what's not allowed. Yes, I think that's a, the accurate way to describe their view. Um, and uh, it's kind of double-edged in my mind, just from talking to, to trainers who are down there who are witnessing this corruption like firsthand. They're seeing their players or, or other trainers attempt to scoop up their own players for, you know, in, in kind of shady ways. Um, those people just don't understand how it would be possible for MLB to enforce the rules at this point because – it's not like there's a paper trail for the most part. Like um, there's not really, you know, if a, if a scout or excuse me, if a, if a trainer hands over his player to another trainer, I mean, that's a pretty common thing to happen because for one reason or another, like this trainer can't continue the player's training or, you know, just has to move on or whatever that that's not an, an uncommon thing. So how are you going to like, how is MLB going to come in here and be, and, and say, Oh, this is very weird that you did that that you transferred the player to somebody else and it's, and because everything is under the table, how are they going to trace that a scout was the one who made this deal happen? How are they going to trace who get like where the trainer sends the money? It, it just, that's how it just seems kind of like a hard thing to actually enforce. If you're trying to tell teams that they have to make sure that their team, that their employees aren't double dipping I mean, it's happened so far because they can't be caught. That's how the league interprets what they've heard. I mean, they they say they've heard a lot of things, um, a lot of disturbing things about the international market, but they've never been able to pursue any investigations because it's impossible for them to do so. So maybe, maybe there is another way to enforce rules um, like the union agents and players would like to be done, but it seems like to do so, like there would have to be some like really, really drastic changes made to how the system works. I don't think it's as simple as just saying, hey, you can't you can't do this because we've been getting away with this forever. Yeah. So I think we kind of know the stakeholders thoughts on the international draft. And we'll get into that a little bit like later on in the conversation. But just in general, like how can an international draft impact how Major League Baseball is able to invest scout and sign prospects like from the Dominican, you know, I guess like just how, how different would it be if all of a sudden it's like, yep, international draft in 2023. Um, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm going to answer this sort of by using what I understand the league has planned for this draft or for a potential draft. Um, they kind of see uh, the opportunity to do more showcases. Um, I would imagine it's like by age group or maybe, something like that. Um, they also see an opportunity to start some actual league play, um, which that's something that doesn't really happen a lot of in um, Latin American countries because everyone is so focused on just making sure their skills are there, or I guess really like the raw talent is there that there's not a lot of games being played. 
like I've talked to coaches before and it's kind of a, a side tangent, but like I've talked to coaches who work really closely with like international kids who've just come off the market. And one of their first things is like, all right, we got to start all the way from the beginning um, because fundamentals of course are taught by these trainers, but those trainers are focused on making sure that a scout will see like, Hey, this guy has a lot of power. Hey, this guy can really throw. Um, hey, this guy could really run. Um, hey, this guy could really, you know, handle the baseball well. Um, those are kind of like their main objectives um, when they're showcasing players. It's not showing them that this guy can play a game or can can read, can read, um, can read routes well. It's like that's just a harder th- thing for them to do, like in a in a single bubble. So MLB want MLB seems to want to like institute a league in some in, in different regions of different countries. Um, and that could kind of help advance multiple, um, multiple lines there for them. Um, and just in terms of how like the, the system of signing players would go, the draft would, you know, be open from 16 and up and players, um, would be just selected. I don't know what kind of, you know, if it would be a snake draft, it would be the same as how, how it currently works domestically. Um, not really clear on that. I've heard that it could be anywhere from 15 to 20 rounds. I've also heard that the minimum signing bonus for players on the international market would be 25,000. And right now um, it, there's a kind of like, there's like a loophole in um, inter- international signing pools where if a team si- signs a player for under t- 10,000 or less, then that money doesn't count against their bonus pool. Um, so that all automatically like raises that like, that floor at least um the the mlb says that there would still there would be even more money to be had um for these players who are draft eligible than there is now in the current system and all that of course remains to be seen um and there's maybe maybe it's kind of hard to say that you can fairly give a 16 year old international player the same amount of money you can give a you know high school eligible high school uh, graduate who you know is draft eligible because he's older um even if it's just a year and a half to two years um because scouts argue that they have seen those guys play more and they kind of know much more at the at that point in the drafting stages what that player could be or who that player could be whereas if a 16 year old is is getting the same kind of money as the top pick in the u.s draft it's they they can't really say the same thing because they haven't seen him play as often um so they're just like some of the things that that will come into play with a potential draft as maria torres you can find her on twitter at maria underscore torres three question about performance enhancing drugs when it comes to those in the dominican is this an issue is it becoming more prevalent now and is it a significant problem that's affecting the market I couldn't tell you for sure if it's more significant now than it was in the past. I think it's still just a significant issue because kids are becoming even more desperate now to find a way to get out because there are new these rules have kind of made it impossible for anyone over 16 to make any kind of money at, at once you become eligible to 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 sign. Um, that's because like teams end up seeing a 17 year old and they're like, "Mm, this guy's 17. He's not really worth us getting into our bonus pool. So we're going to give him the least amount we could possibly give him or just let him go. So in that sense, there are, there, there are a lot of cases of, of, you know, 17 year olds and older juicing and, and, you know, improving 
their skills and then it all, and then it becoming known or just being very obvious that there, there has been a very huge gap or, or jump in skill level. Um, and then when it comes to kids under the age of 16, I mean, it's kind of the same thing, just instead of, instead of just trying to fight for the scraps, they're trying to fight for the highest bonuses. So they have that pressure to, to perform and, and just be bigger, be stronger. So that happens a lot too. And it's, it's, a tough thing it seems for for MLB to regulate it has it has not regulated it well at the very least like there is a trainer partnership program in place that you know there are these like trainers who are involved in that program have more regular access to um to doping tests and all of that but even then i mean everybody anybody can is subject to to a to steroid testing and they still find them out. They they still find them. It's just I don't know. It it seems like a hard thing for or has been pretty hard for MLB to regulate for whatever reason. Hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about the answer. We we talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, that that you mentioned, Maria. It's just I feel like there's so much pressure on a player in the Dominican to succeed, and yet it's the scouts and maybe the teams too who have all the leverage, right? Because they're like you know they're obviously the ones making the decisions. But in the story, like, for example, in the story, you mentioned some of the things you're not supposed to do as a scout when you're, you're laying claim to a player and then developing that player and then even selling them uh, for profit. I mean, what really is going on in the Dominican when it comes to that specific idea in, in terms of just leverage that the scouts and teams have over players? Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, the leverage is all in the hands of, of the teams. Um, they're the ones with the money and the players are the ones fighting for it when and then when you add into the mix like a, some, a scout double dipping and let me kind of just explain a little bit how that works um, a scout is supposed to stay in the region to which he is assigned as far as like when he's evaluating talent like he's, there are you know teams have scouts in different areas of each country um, and those scouts are in charge of their areas so trainers will notice something's amiss when they notice that a scout from a different region is at their facility or maybe at a facility at which they've taken their players or to which they've taken their players. And um, they've seen like this guy kind of like sniffing around, like trying to trying to get him signed or trying to sign a player. And what the, what the scout will do is kind of make a deal with a trainer and he'll tell the trainer, Hey, I really like this guy. Um, and I think I could get him a lot of money, but I'm not going to be able to get him a lot of money from here. I need to send him to this other trainer and the trainer doesn't have leverage at this point, right? Like he's like, Oh shoot. Like I need to be able to make money off this player because I've spent however many years developing him, housing him, feeding him all and showcasing him doing all the stuff that I need to do to get him on the market. And now this guy's saying like, there's a chance I won't make any money if I don't send him off to this other trainer. So, all right, let me, let me, let me send you my, I'll I'll sell you off my player. I'll still get a cut of whatever he signs for. So the scout then takes the player to a new trainer and that trainer, then that trainer becomes involved in the, um, in the negotiations too. So he gets a big cut of the, of the contract. The scout will also get a cut from the big, or from the new trainer because he brought the guy, the, the player to him. So then that's another cut of the, of the contract that goes. Um, and that's just kind of how it works. And there's a, from what I understand, it's a very small ring of 
trainers were involved. And I, I couldn't tell you for a fact how many trainers there are. I've heard a, a, a number thrown out there, 2,000 just independent trainers in the Dominican Republic alone. Um, and really only 50 plus of them are kind of, are in that trainer partnership program um, that MLB has. So, I mean, it's it's the wild, wild west for sure. And it's hard to say who are these guys. And I couldn't tell you those names. And I, I mean, I've heard of some of them, but there's no way that I could say them out loud. They're, you know, it's just, it's, it's uh, as one of, one of the trainers in the article says, it's, it's just a mafia. Um, and the, the trainers who have been doing things the right way for however many years, they're getting slowly like pushed out to the edges of, of the trainer circle because they, they can't compete with guys who are, who are, you know, doing things the wrong way. They can't go and say, hey, like, sign my player when a scout from when a scout is doing that kind of deal. So um, that's just that's kind of how that whole thing works. So, Maria, we've talked about the, you know, the new CBA, which, you know, obviously there's going to be another CBA here eventually. But in the previous one, they did make a lot of changes to this system. In the one before that, when the system wasn't capped, international amateurs made in excess of $20 million at times. Obviously, you know, I, you covered the Nationals. We do the White Sox here. Yon Mankata, when he signed with the Red Sox, I mean, it's, you know, it's like a $30 million bonus, which that's not allowed anymore. So you touched on just how some of these Dominican teenagers don't receive the same bonuses that, you know, sl- the same as their slightly older American counterparts, essentially. I know, you know, Christian Vaquero, who just signed with the Nationals, and I think it was like around, it was like close to $5 million. I mean, guys two years older than him in the baseball draft got $8 million. So, I mean, is there a solution to this, like, gap, I guess, without an international draft at this point? Because they're not going back to the old system where it's uncapped. Yeah, I think that a way to get it slightly closer i think there has to be if they're they're not going to put an international draft in i think that there has to be some kind of rule in place that restricts teams from evaluating players under the age of 15 i think that's the one way that you can find to eliminate teams making verbal agreements with players earlier and then they're not spending their money that far in advance of the of the signing dates, then they're able to more judiciously like spread the money around, um, or spend more time evaluating the players that they think could from that signing class who can who who deserve their you know the majority of their bonus pools. For instance, if they're suddenly limiting the the parameters for who they can watch, then they're actually spending time. And taking the time to learn the players who are eligible to sign that year, so then that's automatically more looks. That's automatically more conversations, and that that means that they're bumping up the confidence that they have in the deals that they're making. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, like I keep going back to the Nationals here, but you know, Christian Vaccaro, what they just signed him for, you know, a deal like that, like with a guy like that, and and teams keep doing this like you you talked about showcases potentially earlier like if there are an international draft that's something that would be different like for our listeners that don't know like a guy like Vaccaro the Nationals might you know who knows like it's all speculation when they agree to that deal but whenever they did it that player's basically shut down not doing showcases not doing anything you know he's at 
whatever facility he works out at. And he's basically like going to the nationals and everybody knows he's going to the nationals, even though he's technically not allowed to sign until he's 16. That's correct. That's exactly how it works. You, you notice like trainers notice once a player's off the market, um, because like you said, he just stops showing up. He's, they don't see him anymore. Scouts don't see that player anymore. Um, he just, he's basically like in hiding and it's up to the trainer at that point um, and his staff to keep the kids sharp. Um, and I, I don't know, I couldn't tell you for a fact, like how, like if he competes, if the player competes a lot or um, there's some other avenue for him to practice. But, you know, if, if a trainer is hosting a tryout at his facility, he can easily, you know, in the morning, have everybody on the field. And as soon as it's time for the scouts to arrive, he can send that player that has already committed. He can just send them away. That's just how they do it. And, 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 and like you said, I, we don't know for a fact when Vaquero would have agreed to his deal with the nationals, but you can absolutely expect you, you, you know, for a fact that he was not showcasing once he had agreed, because then what, what what's the point for of a team committing to a player at that point if he's going to continue to showcase and they and it's easy enough for another team to come in and be like hey that guy's really really good we want to give him this yeah so that's just kind of how how things operate so you might know this there there's an old Juan Soto story with Marco Patti of the White Sox he's you know he's their international director and you know he claims that he thought that he had Juan Soto signed like essentially and then the Nationals people like saw him and offered him like a little bit more and then all of a sudden he was you know, with the Nats. And obviously he wasn't like a huge bonus guy. Like Juan Soto wasn't supposed to be Juan Soto, but that's what happens when you sign 14 or 15 year olds. And then, you know, they turn into guys like that that you're not expecting. So, you know, yeah, there's just, there's all sorts of interesting stories um, on this marketplace. You know, the last thing I have, we talked earlier, you know, about the players union side, how, Obviously, they don't want an international draft because all it does is curtail spending more. And, you know, I think they're right to think that. And, you know, they think that some of the nefarious dealings could be solved, like if MLB just enforced things a little bit more. This is going to be obviously your opinion and probably an informed opinion. But like, do you believe Major League Baseball just actively isn't trying to do anything about the corruption in order to just implement an international draft and kind of say, Oh, well, you guys know that there's issues down here. This is the only way to fix it type of thing is we're going to like install this draft now. I kind of, I, I, I feel like I'm kind of in a gray area. I see things from, from both sides for sure. I can really see how it's difficult for MLB to corroborate any of the allegations that have been brought to them. Maybe they could do more to prevent those things from happening by actually enforcing rules. There are a lot of things that they don't enforce. They don't really enforce. I mean, MLB knows these verbal agreements happen as soon as they happen. That's how international directors have described it to me and, and, and described it to, to my colleague, Ken Rosenthal. Like it's, it's not really, a, it's not a secret. It's a very open secret when a player becomes verbally committed to somebody because he shows he doesn't, he's not on the market. If MLB can do something about that, they should be doing something about that. Um, at the same time, when it comes to stuff like double dipping, I just don't know how they can enforce it. And the problem is that with a draft, like it's going to be, it's in, um, the agent that we, that we spoke to for this article, he, he doesn't understand, he doesn't think that it's possible for the, for the scouts to not continue to double dip, even if the international draft were to come about, because 
that has nothing to do with who's signing the player at that point. It's just like the scout can still get money from the trainer just for bringing him the kid. So I don't know what the answer is. I, I like, I, I, I would like to see how they plan like a real plan for the international draft. I think that one of the really important pieces in all of this is making sure that these Latin American and international kids get the opportunity to play and play professionally. And it's really important for MLB to make sure that kids that are under 15 aren't being lured uh, away from the open market. um, And that kids at who turn 17 are giving the same opportunities to play professionally as kids stateside. It's absolutely insane that there are 17 year olds in the Dominican Republic who are not able to get even $10,000 from a team to try to play professionally. When you, like you, like you mentioned, like there are kids who are signing out of high school for eight um, after being drafted that there's, there has to be some, something has to be done so that all teenagers, all older teenagers, not the young, I mean, the younger ones are going to get their chance, of course, but something has to be done. So those guys don't fall through the cracks because you won't get a lot of stories like, like you have now, like you're you're just, there, there are a lot of kids who or players who, who signed after they turned even 20, like they're, they're, and who've been like successful or at least average major league players. Um, And not all of them were, were boarding at an academy from the time they were 10. Um, Juan Soto is an example of a player who you mentioned, like he didn't get a big signing bonus. One of those things was too, that Soto wasn't on the market really until he was 15. And that doesn't happen anymore. It's impossible for Soto or for someone to wait until they're 15 to get on the market because by then all the money is gone and that shouldn't be right. I mean, the kid can't even sign until he's 16. So how is the money gone already? So I, I don't know if the international, international draft is the answer. I could see how it could help. I also can see that there are a lot of gaps left for MLB to fill with rules and just enforcement of rules. That's Maria Torres of The Athletic. Really informative, insightful, hard-hitting journalism. Uh, collaborated with Ken Rosenthal. You can read her article on theathletic.com. A failed system, a corrupt process, exploits Dominican baseball prospects. Is an international draft really the answer? Maria, outstanding stuff. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Michael. I really appreciate the time, James, and thank you for having me on. Thanks, Maria. So, James, what do you think? Some pretty interesting stuff there. Maria Torres of The Athletic joining us on the Future Sox podcast, and especially the way she ended it there. You know, she's speculating whether or not the international draft is the answer, and that's part of the article. I just, so much of it, James, has me concerned over the power that these scouts have, you know, like that's the thing that that's my takeaway. Like I can't stop thinking about how much control the major league baseball scouts, international scouts and teams have over the players that are developing. I mean, these players living in poverty have no other choice but to play baseball. And if it doesn't work out, then, you know, it's, it's up to the scouts to decide. It's just, I don't know. It's just so filthy. Yeah. The whole thing's bad. And obviously like we've talked about this a lot, like, I mean, at least under the old system, you could make the argument that like, you know, it was worth it for the top guys. And, And there was a lot of years there where the Dodgers spend like $80 million on the international market. And they'd give 10 or $15 million to guys that never even played in the majors. They were just bust and whatever. And like, you'd never hear from them again. 
and like the big market teams, it was kind of like, eh, because if like you hit on one guy, right? Like if you hit on one, you sell Puig for three years or whatever, it's like all worth it. But obviously that became an issue because then you have, and Jerry Reinsdorf is one of these owners. You have owners that like are never going to spend that much money. So they hate it because they know that this is like an avenue to talent that they need. But then you have certain teams who are just deciding to spend 60 or $70 million on the marketplace and blow through all the penalties. So that's why they changed it in the first place. And now like with this bonus pool system, it's like your, your small market clubs have like, you know, like a just over $6 million to spend. And teams like the White Sox have like 5100000 which is just like, you know, it just like isn't mm-hmm. that much money. So yeah, it's super capped. There's nothing that teams can really do about it. And it, it almost makes things worse because you're, you're giving kids like take it or leave it offers when they're like 14 years old, essentially. You know, and sometimes it backfires. Like sometimes the, right. you know, the kid, like the body gets too big and they never turn into anything or whatever. But you know, sometimes they turn into Juan Soto. It's so interesting to me, that aspect of the market and how it's capped at this point and how international draft could change the landscape. I'm thinking about like what we talked about on previous episodes. Like, Imagine if Oscar Colas was not an international prospect. What if he was a stateside prospect free agent as a 23-year-old? Like, How much would he rake in if he was a stateside prospect or free agent? You know, yeah. it's just like there's I, such a difference. Well, there. I don't know what the number is, but it's more than 2.7. Right. You know, like he's going to get 2.7 like million because more. because the White Sox essentially and look, they haven't made any of their signings official yet, but they have 5.1 million to spend. 2.7 of it's going to Oscar Colas. And my guess is 2.7 is going to Oscar Colas because they had a million dollar agreement with Eric Hernandez and they probably have their other money allocated to other teenagers. And they were like, look, Oscar. Like, we'd love to have you. Rich Cuban history, obviously, like 2.7 is all we have. And that's what they gave him. And, you know, they they came up with a deal, you know. So it's not like they can just renege on other offers and give him $5 million. Now, in the old system, they could have, but it's just not the way it is anymore. It's capped and, you know, it hurts a lot of these, like, older international players. And even around the league, too, when you talk about committed dollars to several signing periods, I mean, again, leverage not so much to the player, uh, but back to the teams. Uh, and what you're saying there is kind of a good example of like, well, Oscar, good luck finding a better deal than $2.7 million. It's just crazy to think that he could be worth like what? What do you think he would get in the open market stateside if he wasn't backed by restrictions? Like $10 million? Do you think he's worth that much? Am I am I oversimplifying no, this? No, he, he probably gets that. I just think it's a totally different deal i mean you probably he probably still gets a minor league deal so yeah i would imagine it would just hmm. be like a bonus you know because he's like not ready to play in the majors even though of he, course even though yeah. he's older so you don't want to put him on the 40 man until you have to but i mean yeah if the system were uncapped he would he would get a lot more than that i mean there were guys mm-hmm. worse than him that got a lot more money out of cuba that never played before you know i mean luis robert got the, like if luis robert came over now I mean, he's like signing for five million, like Christian Vaccaro just did. Right, like it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, because I think of uh, like Mike Rodolfo and the years of control that the White Sox had. Back, was it 2013? Right when Adolfo. Yeah, and he only, and he only got class. like 1.5 million. Yeah, and the the amount of years that the White Sox had him in the system, and it's just to think, you know, Colas, you know, as advanced as he is, I know he hasn't, you know, played 
professional competition, especially not stateside. But like, you know, this is an advanced international prospect getting 2.7 million. And I'm just thinking of how that relates to the rest of the field. And I don't know. I, I think, see, I have so much to learn about the international marketplace that people like Maria Torres does the job to in, inform me, like specifically me, because I need to learn. And I'm happy that she was able to do that for me. I don't know about you. But for me, it was great. I mean, in, yeah. in regards to the international draft, I think it's going to happen at this point. When is probably the only question. And like, I understand why players don't want it because it's a it's another capped system, right? If there's a draft with bonus pools, there's a limit on what teams can spend. But honestly, like, it's no different than the current system. Like, I think you could definitely argue that an international draft is more beneficial to all than what they're currently doing. Now, it's it's probably not better than what they were doing five years ago, you know, when you could just, like, spend whatever you wanted. But obviously, like, the owners put a stop to that because some owners just, like, didn't want to play in those waters. So while I kind of agree, like, with the players to an extent that, like, oh, an international draft's not great, like, it, it, it probably is better than what they're currently, like, attempting to do, in my opinion. Well, there you go. International draft made sense to me when it was brought up about a year ago when we had this discussion. I remember talking to Josh Nelson about this, too, James, when uh, we were going through our draft, right? Well, I think it was Josh Nelson. Um, time flies. Uh, but I, I remember that idea being brought to the conversation on this podcast a couple of times, and I'm for it. I'd love to see how that plays out. But again, you know, we're, we're monitoring the CBA and, and how that is going to affect um, everything down the line in Major League Baseball. So thank you, James, for uh, pulling that article and getting Maria Torres to jump on the Future Sox podcast to discuss that with us today. That's James Fox, our lead editor at Future Sox. You can follow him at JamesFox917, right? Did I nail that? That's correct, yes. Uh, there it is. My name is Mike Rankin. You can follow me on Twitter at Rankin906. We're on Future Socks at Future Socks. Go to futuresocks.com for all of our content and check us out on Anchor as well to listen to all our podcast episodes. That'll do it for this week, and we will talk to you all next time. Thanks so much for listening.